And so as we had mentioned earlier, um, we do today have the privilege of hearing from um, Amy Wilkinson, who's going to be preaching for us, delivering a word. It's kind of in the rhythm that we've been doing over the last uh, several months, where we aim to have someone um, speak and deliver a different uh, engagement of the text, a different way of preaching the sermon, a different way of embodying the world and encountering God through the text. And so uh, in our rhythm, you hear me preach fairly often at Northeast. Um, but what we're doing is trying to bring in a rhythm of being able to hear other voices and so that we can encounter God in the voices that speak from the stage and also be formed to encounter God in the voices that speak and that we encounter uh, outside of these walls. And so Amy, I'd love to invite you up and um, I'm going to give you this handheld here. Amy, again, she is at Green Lake, and she's preaching for us. She leads the, um, the Belong ministry, and so maybe you could give us a little rundown of what that is, too. But let's welcome Amy, and Amy, thanks for being here. Yeah, thank you. Well, good morning, everyone. I am so grateful to get to be here with Bethany Northeast this morning. Um, as Silas said, I am the uh, Associate Director of the Belong Ministry, uh, which means on a weekly basis at Bethany Green Lake, I work with families of children with special needs, foster families, and adoptive families, uh, which has just really been an incredible gift of a ministry to get to work in, um, and also get to spend some time with our children, youth, and family team, and our missions team, and um, really, as is in church life, sometimes doing just a little bit of everything. Um, so I am so grateful uh, to be invited here this morning. It's just a gift to get to see this community. Um, I am hoping it's okay if I borrow this. Great. Um, Um, I was sharing with someone when I got here that I was on the teaching team for several years at a small church, and that that church, the size was about this uh, area here. So I was like, it's kind of debatable church, Bible study, like something in that category. Um, but it's just been so, uh, I'm so excited to get to be here with you all. Um, so we're in a sermon series called Love God, Love Others, where we're exploring the book of First John and seeing uh, what John has to say about going back to the core tenets of our faith, really the core gospel of our faith. Um, so in this series last week, we had Silas share with us introducing 1 John 1. I'm going to be going through 1 John 2 this morning. Um, and I have to say, when I was prepping for this, like two days ago, I was uh, sending stuff for the bulletin and realized, like, oh, I need a title for this sermon, and I hadn't thought of one yet. And then I had this great idea. I was like, I'm going to call this one, knowing what the topic was, I was like, oh, I'll call it Love God, Love Others. And I was really excited. And then like a half hour later, I was like, oh, that's the title of the series. I did not think of that. So my genius moment was immediately gone. I was like, oh, I was subconscious. Um, so, but that's really what I wanted to focus on here this morning was this idea of what does it mean to love God and love others um, as this really is the core, the core tenets of our gospel that we believe. This is truly where God has called us. What does it mean to love him and love others? And a huge part of that is what does it mean to be loved by God? Uh, so I'm going to open us up with some uh, with prayer, and then we're going to go into 1 John 2 and see what John has to say about loving God, being loved by God, and loving others. Lord, I just thank you for this community here this morning. I thank you for your Holy Spirit, your presence with us. Lord, I just ask that you would uh, dwell with us here. 
I will ask that you would open my mouth to share your words. You would open all of our hearts to be open, willing, ready to receive what you have to say to us. Lord, I ask that it's not my words, but it's your words, your truth that dwells in our hearts this morning. That we would go out from this space knowing you a little better, being more inspired and excited to know you, and being more encouraged in the gifts that you have given us in order to love each other and love the world better. Lord, be with us this morning, dwell with us in this space, and lead us out as we go. In your name, amen. So when I was in college, uh, I had the privilege of reading this very random article. I was an English major, a critical theory major, and so uh, there was this particular article about politics and indigenous communities in the Andes that absolutely fascinated me. So it was written by this anthropologist named Marisol de la Cadena, uh, and writing about the way an indigenous community in Bolivia was challenging the government because they wanted to give a mountain political autonomy. They wanted to give a mountain the right to vote, essentially. Now, this was happening because they were seeing the way that the government wanted to use the land as a resource, uh, as a development area, and this indigenous community wanted to push back and say, no, the, the mountain ought to have its own autonomy. But this article that I was reading was really about kind of the nature of broken communication, that there was this misunderstanding going on between the indigenous community and the government that the two were not aware of. There was a lack of awareness, like we don't really get that we're not actually understanding one another. So uh, we're gonna put a definition up on the screen. This is for the word equivocation, which typically this word actually has a different meaning in the English language, but in this context, it means, and bear with me, a failure to understand that understandings are necessarily not the same and that they are not related to imaginary ways of seeing the world, but to real worlds that are being seen. So. Essentially, what this means is that each community was looking at the other and not getting that they didn't understand the other's perspective. And not only that they didn't understand the other's perspective, but the other's perspective wasn't an imaginary made-up thing, but it was the way that each community was actually experiencing something. So in this case, and we can take a look at the, the mountain that is being talked about here in the Andes, uh, the indigenous population was looking at this mountain and saying, this is a being and the uh, government was looking at the mountain and saying this is an object. But what's interesting is if each population looked at a definition, if they're gonna look up Webster's definition of mountain, it's probably gonna be the same and they're probably gonna agree. Yes, this is a piece of land, this is terrain, this is geography, whatever mountains are, you know, rocks, built, there's, I don't know enough about geography to actually tell you. But you know, big pointy rocks, giant, we have lots of them here. They can agree on this kind of general concept of a mountain, but the miscommunications happening in the way that each population had experienced a mountain. One was saying object, this is something we can use. The same way that I would argue that in the United States we treat land, it's a human's decision whether or not we use land as a preservation and protected space, as a resource, or as development opportunity. We develop it and build something there. And this indigenous community in Bolivia was saying, no, the mountain should have its own say in this. It's a, it's a being. It's both like a human and not like a human. It deserves autonomy. It deserves agency in what we do with it. So this nature, this is a equivocation, this kind of nature of broken communication is something that's really fascinating when we try and understand the way we relate to God with kind of this misunderstanding. 
So uh, taking a little bit of a shift here, there was a book my husband and I read before we got married called The Meaning of Marriage by Tim Keller. I don't know if any of you have ever read this book, but it's a pretty common one. You know, you're getting married here, read Tim Keller's Meaning of Marriage. Uh, so we read this book, and there's this thing that happens in it where he, uh, Tim Keller is talking about his parents and how his parents expressed love to one another. So he said that his mom expressed love by serving. She wanted to serve to so, show the way she loved the family. His father showed love by supporting the family. He, made, he went to work every day, and he made sure there was food on the table. This was their expression of love. So suddenly Tim Keller gets married, and his wife doesn't express love that way, and he's like, she doesn't love me. She doesn't serve the way my mom served. She doesn't support the way my dad supported. She doesn't love me. And of course, he realizes that she was showing love in other ways that she had learned through experience to show love. So when we talk about the word love, in particular to God, we all mean something slightly different based on our own personal experience with love. So you and I, we can, we can open up Webster's Dictionary, look at the definition of love, and we're both probably going to be like, yeah, we agree. If I tell you I love Taco Bell, and I do, you know what I mean. You know what I'm getting at. You're like, yeah, yeah, she loves Taco Bell. When my husband says he loves me, it brings that feeling of affirmation, love, and support that he's able to provide me. But there's still something slightly different when you and I each say the word love. We all have our own experiences with love. So this is an, this equivocation, kind of brokenness and understanding. These can be vast or subtle in difference between us, but the reality is you and I mean something different when we say love. Your belief of love, it's going to be impacted by your childhood, your culture, your upbringing, your past relationships, dating and non-dating, the way you've interacted with friends, your present relationships, the TV shows you've watched, the books you've read. These are all forming the way we experience and show love. So as we go into today's message, I want to remind us um, and remember as we talk about love, we're going to be centering on what is God's love. Last week, Silas asked us, can we see what God has put right in front of us? And I want to expand that question this morning and say, can we see the love God has put right in front of us? And if we can't see God's love, what's preventing us from seeing it? What in our past lives and experiences is making it hard to truly understand God's love? See, our understanding of love must start in our experience of God's love for us. So this morning, as we talk about what does it mean for God to love us, and then how do we love others out of that place? We're gonna focus in on three areas. We're gonna talk about what the love of the world is. We're gonna talk about what it means to abide in the Father's love. And we're gonna talk about what, how we can learn to love others through the Father's love. And each of this leads us to a place where we can dwell and abide in God's love, being transformed and changed by his love and then turning and loving others. So let's turn to 1 John. And we're going to read 1 John 2 all together. Uh, and as we, um, as we enter into 1 John 2, be thinking and dwelling on this space. What does it mean for God to love us? And what is John calling to, to enter into God's love? My little children, I am writing these things to you that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, for the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, 
and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And by this we know that we have come to know him, if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Beloved, I am writing to you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the world, is the word that you have heard. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I am writing to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going, because the darkness has blinded his eyes. I am writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. I am writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I am writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong and the word of God abides in you and you have overcome the evil one. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. Children, it is the last hour, and as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so many, now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they, are, they all are not of us. But you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you all have knowledge. I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and because no lie is of the truth. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that he made to us, eternal life. I write these things to you that those who are trying to deceive you, but the anointing that you receive from him abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about everything and is true and is no lie, just as it has taught, just as it has taught you, abide in him. And now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears, he may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming, if you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. This is the word of the Lord. Yeah, gotta get some water after reading all that. <laughs> Um, so the book of 1 John is written by John the Elder. He's the same author of uh, the book of John, 2 John, 3 John, and Revelation. Um, and in this particular 
uh, book, he is writing to the churches as the churches have experienced a crisis um, that they're over heresy with individuals in the church claiming that Christ is not God um, and claiming new, new truths. So John's message, one of John's core messages in this is coming back to say um, that you already have the truth. You have the gospel. John wants to increase his audience's adherence to beliefs and practices they already hold. He wants to say you, you already have what you need. So how do we come back to that? We are looking to experience in this not a new message or a new truth, but a revelation of what we already know in Christ, what he has already placed in front of us. So, as to start in this, let's take a look at what does he mean by the love of the world. Because as we're talking about love, at one point, John, in uh, verses 15 to 17, he's talking about the love of the world here. Um, and it's important to understand what he means by world because he's contrasting it against the love of the Father. So quickly, at 1 John 2, 15 to 17, he says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. Okay, so let's look at the word world in the context here. Um, we, John is saying the world is all that is not from God. Uh, there's a lot of language in this book of John that is very dualistic. He's inviting comparisons kind of of this either-or category. Um, dualism is, there's a theologian and author Thomas B. Slater describes as occurring when two sides perceive their perspective to be mutually exclusive. So an easy example of this is kind of the idea of good and evil. Um, one of the easiest things I think of is like the early Star Wars movies. Um, there's a very clear definition of who is good, who is evil. You know, the, the, the movies go as far as like the dark side and the light side of the force. Um, but it's really clear to you who's on the good side and who's on the bad side. And until, without spoilers, until the end of movie six, like there's really nothing to complicate who's good and who's bad. Um, no spoilers if you haven't, but like, you know. Um, I think most of you know. <laughs> what I mean. Uh, on the way here, my husband and I were even talking about this with like Lord of the Rings and like debating on like whether Lord of the Rings is dualistic because of this good evil dynamic. So if you're looking for like, you know, a, a fierce intellectual debate later on in the week, like Lord of the Rings, is it dualistic? I don't know. Um, but I think Star Wars is kind of easy example of this good and evil dynamic. Um, but one of the dangers of uh, dualism is that we get these like uncomplicated ideas of good and bad. And then where it's really easy for us to oversimplify and draw clear lines of like, okay, well, this person's in the good, this person's in the bad. And then it becomes even easier to categorize those as, okay, well, good and bad, right and wrong. And then I'm on this side, and all these other things are over here. So we get these very clear lines of where things belong. And they can't be, it's not complicated. If something's in the good, it also can't be evil. If something is in the good, it also can't be in the bad. So there's, uh, when we go, talking about dualistic language, there's a lot of, like, this language we are familiar with in the Bible. Um, the idea of flesh and spirit. Does that sound familiar from what you've seen in the Bible, especially in the New Testament? Flesh and spirit. In this case, what is from God and what is from the world? But see, here's why we need to be careful of John's intent and what he means. Because when we divide the world around us into the split categories of dualism, we lose the ability to love others in the world the way God intended. 
We're tempted to move things into these categories of good and bad. If we say flesh and spirit, equate that with good and bad, suddenly we're saying, well, this is of the spirit, so it's therefore good. This is of the flesh, and it's therefore bad. So if we believe that all reality is divided into these kind of categories, we're tempted to label things as inherently bad or evil. And what does this actually look like in the way we interact in our lives? Uh, I think one of the ways I've experienced this in, the, in churches and with Christians in particular is around this idea of spirit and flesh. And there's an ability we have if we over-prioritize the spirit is good, the flesh is bad, we begin to take opportunities to love the spiritual and the eternal for people and forget to care about the practical and the physical. So I can think of uh, times where uh, in churches I've experienced counting saved souls but not actually providing opportunities for discipleship or ongoing relationship that includes supporting growth in Christ. I can think of uh, times I've seen pamphlets handed out to those who are experiencing homelessness um, or even saying, like, we're going to pray for them, but then not having any practical engagement, not providing food, not providing clothes, not providing shelter. See, dualism that labels all things of the world and of the flesh as bad prioritizes spiritual care, but doesn't care for the life that is actually going on now. But there's also another side to this, is that if we don't recognize and acknowledge the spiritual reality that someone is living in, or the spiritual reality that we walk in, we forget the best thing that we have to offer is the hope of Christ. And I've seen churches and Christians walk in these paths as well. We provide financial support to those in need, but avoid actual relationship. We're willing to show up and serve, but afraid to share our own faith, even when we feel led. It becomes that, are they going to judge me? Are they gonna, is it going to end the relationship right there if I talk too much about my faith? But this is a moment of forgetting the best thing I have to offer someone is hope in Christ. The best thing I have to offer someone is something I don't actually have, I can't hold. It's something beyond me. It's something outside of me. It is a spiritual, eternal reality. See, one of the ways we need to understand John's language around this is that for John, the term flesh, it's not an inherently sinful term. John is the one who wrote in 1 John, oh, sorry, John 1.14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Christ himself became flesh and yet was sinless. So the flesh, the body, the physicality of the world is not inherently bad. The word flesh for John is not a negative word. It's a reality. It's our bodily desires. Those are something that's natural. It is our fallen nature that leads us to satisfy those desires in sinful ways. So in, in this particular verse, when John is calling out things of the world, there are three things he's calling out. The desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life. John is pointing to not physical versus spiritual, but instead the way that we act when we're not motivated by an experience of the love of God. So these things, desire of the flesh, desire of the eyes, pride of life, these are about control, about possession and self-righteousness. The pride of life points to pride in one's own self, our ability to save ourselves, our ability to gather possessions, our ability to have our own resources. And it loses a reminder of that we are actually dependent on God. This might be pride in my morals. It could be pride in my finances, pride in my life choices. 
I made really good choices, therefore I got myself here. It could be pride in our possessions, our ethics. I can't tell you how many times I've experienced this pride of ethics. I have a good ethical compass and a good moral system. How easily do we forget Christ when we're driven by pride of our own morals and ethics? Pride of belief systems. Anything, all of these remove us from needing Christ. The desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes that John's talking about. See, our bodies experience natural desires. Christ experienced physical desires. We see it in Matthew 4. We know he experienced temptation. But when we act on these desires out of our fallen nature, this is where sin takes place. This is what, um, where we lose the priority of God's love and truth in our lives. So what, is, what does it look like to act on these out of our fallen natures? It's when we uh, find our identity in our desires and achieving what we want. Or maybe we hoard what we want. We have our desires and we're able to hoard it and collect it. Maybe it's an attempt to control what we want. And this might be a control of other people even. We want to control people in our lives so that we get affirmation and feel better. We become addicted. See, when the value of the thing that we desire takes a greater value than God, we use it to replace God in our lives. So the question is then, what are the areas where desires of our flesh, desires of our eyes, have replaced God as a source of love, as a source of fulfillment, a source of identity, and a source of sustenance? What are you sustained by? Where do you find love? Where do you find your identity? But there's something about this that I find deeply encouraging and I'm really inspired by John by. Because I read scriptures where these kind of things are listed. All right, we've got our three, all right, desire the flesh, desire the eyes, pride of life. Those are three things that I'm not gonna do. You know, and it feels almost like a to-do list, a checklist of spirituality. Okay, I'm gonna not do these things and therefore I'm gonna get close to God. But John doesn't actually move in that direction. John's kind of looking backwards. He's saying, he's not saying don't do this. He's actually already kind of jumped ahead of that. And he said, if you're living in this, then you're living in darkness. If you're living in this, the truth is not in you. See, these are instead indications of not abiding in God, not a checklist of things that we should not be doing. So when we live in these spaces, these are flags for us to say, oh, this is a space in my life I'm not dwelling in God's spirit. I haven't welcomed God into this space. I need to invite God in for his truth and his love. He has a, John has one single repetitive directive in this, and it is to abide in God. When we abide in God, God's presence heals and speaks truth into the places where, God, where we have not yet invited God's presence in. So our invitation in the scripture is to get to know God. It is to abide in God. And above all of the ideas of here are the three things that I need to watch out for what I'm doing, we instead use these as ways to look and see, all right, where in my life have I not welcomed God in? Where in my life am I struggling with a desire of the flesh? That's a space where I'm experiencing a lack of fulfillment that God has for me. How can I bring God into that space? So for our next point, what does it mean to abide in the Father's love? How do we abide in God? 1 John 2, 24 to 25 says, Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. 
If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and the Father. And this is the promise that he made to us, eternal life. The word abide appears in this chapter six times. John returns to it over and over again. And this is John going back to this idea of you already have the truth that is in you. You have access to God. You know who God is. Dwell in him. Abide in him. Uh, There's this great book called The Gift of Being Yourself by David Benner um, about the relationship between how we recognize the realities that keep us from knowing God and invite us to steps of greater knowledge of God. And this is because we have to be able to recognize within ourselves the places where we have not experienced God. So there is a a point of which self-reflection and self-knowledge helps us recognize where we're not inviting God in and then takes us to steps to know God and invite him into those spaces. David Benner says, knowing God's love demands that we receive God's love experientially, not simply as a theory. Personal knowledge is never simply a matter of the head because it is rooted in our experience. It is grounded in deep places in our being. We have to experience God's love, not just know about God's love. So what are the places our understanding of love is based on experience outside of God's love for us? What I mean by this is where are the places where you have experienced love that has been harmful or like uninformative or un, it's been an experience that has harmed the way you, ex, you have both experienced and show love rather than being a true reflection of God's love. What we're gonna have on the screen in a minute are some particular scriptures and I'm gonna ask questions around the ways we've experienced God's love. And I wanna invite you that one of the best places we can start to abide in God's truth around his love for us is in scripture that there are scriptures that tell us and remind us that we can dwell in, abide in, and meditate on that remind us of what God's love actually has to say about us. So as these come up, if there are particular areas where you resonate with, feel free, if it's helpful for you, take a picture or write scriptures down. But I wanna encourage that these are spaces we can begin to meditate to recognize this is where God's, I have not experienced God's love and I want to invite him in. So my first question is, have you been loved poorly or experienced a lack of love in your life? Because God's love is healing. My next question is, have you been loved partially? Loved at your best, but not at your worst. God's love is complete. Loving us as we are now, in our vulnerability, in our honesty. And he guides us towards our best selves, but he loves us at our complete selves, just as you are right now. God's love is complete. Have you been loved transactionally? Only for what you offer, or only loved in response to someone. You love someone and therefore they love you back. Love for your ability to love. God's love is self-sacrificing. God's love loves you whether or not you love him back. And my final question is, has the way you've been loved impacted the way you love others? God's love is didactic. It teaches us how to love others well. God's love reveals to us what it means to love. 
in the places where the way that the world has taught us to love has taught us to love like the world. We encounter God's love for us through scripture, through meditation, and through our relationship with Christ by meeting Jesus in the gospels and meeting him in our everyday lives, by dwelling in the truth that scripture has to say about who we are and who God is. So as we spend time coming to know Christ personally, we can draw closer to God and experience his healing, complete, and self-sacrificing love for ourselves. And this leads into my final point that as we experience this kind of love, it will teach us and direct us of how to love others well. How do we love those around us? The, Father, the love of the Father reveals to us what it means to truly love. So God's love is not the love that we apply to God based on our, our experiences or unique understanding. So when we say God's love, we're still using a language that's based on our personal experience of love, but instead we need to be able to experience God's love first in order to know what love truly is. So God's love is uh, all-encompassing. It covers the true and good love we have experienced, because we have experienced good and true love in our lives, but we have also experienced broken love. God's love covers the vast amount of different kinds of true and complete love we've experienced, but it also heals the broken love we've experienced. So if we look at 1 John 2, 5, it says, but whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. And this, uh, like, paused me when I read it because I was like, oh, in him, the love of God is perfected. There's other translations. You can also translate that perfected as fulfilled. Uh, the NLT says, but those who obey God's word truly show how completely they love him. The New Century Version says, God's love has truly reached its goal. Theologian and commentator Judith Liu says, in this case, the phrase fulfillment looks forward to the obedience to commands that is the sure evidence of a knowledge of God or of Jesus that cannot otherwise be proven. So we know, we know God's love, and God's love is recognized by our ability to love others. This verse means God's love is made complete in us as we obey his command to love others. But that must start at our receiving and experiencing God's love. That is how it's made complete. It has to be that combination. We have to know God's love and then we have to live it out in our lives. And it's a natural response as we experience God's love that we will share it with others. We turn and love God and Christ and express it in our love for others. And only in this combination are we reaching this fulfillment of love. You see, we are loved by God. But if we love others in commandment only, not because of God's love for us, we are living in the love of the world. So um, my husband and I got married on April 4th, 2020. Uh, which, you know, before we got married, that was a date. We were like, 4-4-2020, it sounded like a really fun date. And now I tell people, we got married April 4th, 2020, and everyone's like, oh, yeah, that sounds hard. <laughs> it was an adventure. <laughs> um, the, when we got married, so we had actually dated entirely long distance. Uh, so we got married, we got engaged long distance. I lived in California, Kevin was up here in Washington, uh, which is quite an adventure. And then we got married, and then there was, a, there was a pandemic, and then we got married. And then suddenly we go from like long distance to we are literally working from home at the exact same desk. 
there was like a sharp learning curve of what it means to actually love each other well in the middle of a crisis. And so I have this like struggle, which I'm hoping someone in the room resonates with, where like I have a hard time saying out loud what I need or want. Instead, I wanna like passively get the other person to do what I need or want. So like I feel like that like he loves me, but I'm also like, he thought of that himself instead of, and I just like passively manipulated that to happen. It's a great habit, works really well in relationships. Um, so there's this one time where I had decided again, we're like deep in the pandemic, and I was like, it'd be nice to have like a date night together. Like we're not going anywhere, we're in the house, but like still be nice. So like I have this big plan in my head, I'm gonna make this nice dinner. We're gonna do a board game, we'll watch a movie or something. And then I have this genius way of getting Kevin on board where I go to him and I say, hey, what do you wanna do tonight? That was my entire plan. I really hoped he would think of it himself. Um, and, and he didn't uh, because he does not read my mind. Um, again, they tell you all this stuff before you get married and you get married and you're like, I'm gonna do it anyways, it's gonna work for me. Um, so later that night, he's like, hey, one of my friends I haven't talked to in a while is online. I'd really like to play a game with him. And I was like, oh, yeah, of course. That's great. And then I sulk the rest of the evening, sad that it did not occur to him that I wanted to have a date night. So, which, if anyone knows my husband, if I had said even half of what I wanted out loud, he would have immediately been like, oh, of course, let's do that. That sounds great. If you want time together, like, we'll make time together. Like, that is 100% who he is, but I did not give him any indication of that and instead just got hurt and angry and sad that he did not figure out exactly what I want. So this attempt that I had of getting Kevin to express his love for me in the way I wanted began as a built-up idea of me expressing my love for him, of like, I will show him love this way in order to get it back from him in the way I want. See, that's not a genuine expression of an act of love. It's instead an attempt at control. That's all it is. I wanted to control his behavior and get what I want, and when it didn't work, I was sad. See, love that results from the brokenness we have experienced, whether or not, whether it's at the hands of control, possession, or ownership of someone else, it's only gonna create more brokenness. That's all it does. Broken love creates broken love. This looks, like this is a sweet story of in a marriage relationship where, you know, we have since learned this about each other and learned to talk about it, but this is actually a real dangerous reality in the world. This is love looking to others for the results we can get out of it. Loving others in order to control them. We might show love to others in order to get love back. Or we think we love others, but only love how they make us feel. This is something that in years of childcare, I've even experienced of seeing people wanting to serve with kids, but also with there's a brokenness in them that feels the need for love. And children really offer love and friendship so warmly and openly. And there's a way we can receive, we, we like draw, are being drawn to receive something from that, but it loses the space of actually loving a child well. We might love our others to rid ourselves of our own shame that we have experienced because of historical injustices. This is an especially dangerous one that if I, as someone who is white, have experienced 
experienced and am experiencing my own shame and guilt around the historical injustices done to my BIPOC brothers and sisters, I might be compelled to love them out of a desire to rid myself of shame and guilt as opposed to loving them well in that moment and space for who they are. Broken love is expressed to make ourselves feel better about an unjust and broken world that we live in. The world we live in is broken. But if we offer love out of a broken love, it will not get better. It does not create healing. These are all ways of loving others for what we get out of it, for the way we feel, loving others for ourselves. See, sometimes our understanding of love is scarred by a lack of love or being unjustly unloved. To be the receiving end of love that was motivated by control or possession from someone else, it damages the way we understand love. It only hurts. But God has the healing power of restoration. He brings it into places where we have been unjustly unloved. God's love is invitational. It allows us to see ourselves as we truly are. It heals us of the ways we have been harmed and unloved and allows us to see and love others as they are seen and loved by him. I'm gonna invite the band to come back up as we continue in worship and continue, I'm gonna make an invitation uh, into the practice of confession that uh, you began last week. See, this practice invites us to vulnerably approach God with our whole selves. His love can carry the weight of all of our sin, all of our shame, all of our grief. So this morning, I wanna invite you to consider, as we move into confession, in what spaces are you living by a love taught by the world? In what spaces in your life is the love that you are showing and you are wanting to show and you are wanting to experience not God's love, but taught by the world and a love of the world. As we move into confession, please consider joining me. There are uh, uh, black markers and black sticky notes, and you can place it on the cross, but this is a space to come before God. Uh, this is a space to come before God and to confess and say, here's where I have not been loved well, heal me. Here's a space where I am not loving well. Teach me how to love. Lord, this morning I ask that you would, that you would be in all of our hearts as we move into a space of coming with to you. Speak to each of us right where we're at. Is this a time to be healed in your love? Is it a time to consider where our own actions of attempted love have been hurtful or harmful? Is it a time to question, uh, Lord, where your love is not in my heart, in my life? And please come into that space and transform me so I can be more like you. I live in a broken world and I want to see your love invade and transform every single place and corner and step, but it must start in my own heart. It must start in confession. It must start in knowing you more. So this morning, I come before you with that ask for all of us that we would open our hearts and open our ears to hear what you have to say. We thank you for your love. It is a love beyond anything we can understand and we ask for a piece of it this morning that you would expand us to know. In your name, amen.